we have a tree in our front room, as you might. Uh, sometimes the outdoors comes in and it's had me thinking about this passage and about nourishment and about roots and about vines. And since we've moved to uh, the West Coast, one of our family uh, traditions has been to drive out to a tree farm somewhere and cut down our own Christmas tree. Uh, we make the trek out like the Griswold family and we cut a tree down that's uh, much too big for our front room. We mount it on top of our truck and we take it home. And uh, we get it home and we have to cut, you know, a little bit more off the trunk. We wrangle it into the tree holder. And then we turn on Christmas music and we pull out all of our ornaments, um, reminiscing over some of the special, the sentimental ones. And an hour or so after untangling those uh, Christmas lights that have strangely gotten into a ball as they've been stored uh, in our crawl space, we decorate the tree and we turn on the lights. And it's then that we know it's Christmas time. All of life takes on a little bit different, a little bit more hopeful, and at the same time, a more nostalgic tone. The tree is beautiful and it begins to accumulate presence underneath and it, it stands out in our window far more prominent than it did when it was in the field where it looked like every other tree. Now it's decorated, now it's lit up, now it's beautiful, but it's also dead. The tree will go on looking beautiful and unique for at the most five weeks, but by then it will be completely dried out. No matter how well you do it, keeping water in that bowl, it dries out and becomes then a major fire hazard for your house because it is dead. It no longer has a root system to deliver water to its branches and to keep it alive. This is a fitting image of life cut off from the nourishment of God. In our gospel passage, uh, Jesus is calling us to bear fruit, to be lit by the gospel, to be beautiful for him. But he says that the only way that you can do that is if you're connected to him, if you are on the vine. Otherwise, life is merely a long process of dying. Now, what passes down that vine? What essential nutrient keeps the branches alive. Jesus says it's love. In verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In our final Advent sermon, I want us to consider, I want us to meditate just upon one thing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That Jesus says to us that he loves us as or equal to the way in which his father loves him. Did you, did you get that? Did you hear that? Do you believe that? And I don't mean, yes, I would acknowledge that the Bible teaches that. But do you, in your bones, in your, in your private moments, do you believe, do you trust that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the exact image of God in human form, 
loves us as or equal to the way in which his father loves him. Have you ever thought about the fact that the strangest parts of Christianity, its most peculiar claims, are also its most essential and most life-changing? The incarnation of Jesus, for one, the eternity of God, the Trinity. We can't get our minds around these things, and yet they are some of the most essential and life-changing parts and claims of Christianity, that God has existed as Trinity, three in one, forever. It's almost impossible to imagine, to conceptualize, and yet it is an absolutely indispensable truth of God that he has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving relationship forever. In other words, love isn't merely an observed attribute of God. It's not merely an action that he performs. What we are told is that love is an essential part of his nature. Love is an essential part of God being God. Love precedes the creation. Love is the cause of creation. Love is at the very roots of reality. It's at the the foundation of of all things. It's the genesis of our existence. We are created out of love to be loved and to give love. But don't we sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, look for it in ways that draws us farther and farther away from the source of love and towards substitutes that leave us feeling alone and ostracized not only from God, but even from ourselves. No one knows, or at least no one that I could tell knows, who came up with this phrase. It's been attributed to everyone from Graham Greene to G.K. Chesterton to C.S. Lewis to George MacDonald. But one of them said that everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. A man visiting a brothel isn't merely looking for, you see, physical pleasure, but he's looking for love. He's looking for intimacy. He's looking for a real person to embrace him and at least an expression of human love, though distorted. A drive is inside him that is so powerful that he's willing to settle for a lie, for a fabrication, for the physical symbolism of love rather than the thing itself. Now, maybe you and I are not paying for this kind of faux representation of love, but don't we understand that craving? Don't we understand that thought that I would do anything to be embraced? I would do anything to be vulnerable before another person and still be loved. Don't we see times in our lives where we're willing to manipulate others to get even a sense of love, even a taste of love? 
Don't we often hide our true selves for fear that if we are seen, that someone that we love will withdraw their love from us? There's a study by an anthropologist at Rutgers asking, do we need love as much as sex and as food? And this paper asserts that romantic love is not so much a swelling of emotions, but it's a physical drive as powerful as hunger. And the author says, I've looked at poetry from all over the world. Some poems 4,000 years old or older. People don't live and die for sex, but they live and die for love. They sing for love. They write for love. They dance for love. Love is something that has been built into our humanity. It's something woven into the very fabric of creation itself. Now, love with other human beings is indispensable. And the Bible says that. Yet at the same time, what Jesus is saying is that the actual need for love is so profound that no human, no created thing will ever be able to fully satisfy it. And we can never be the kind of lovers and friends that we want to be until we deal with our desires and drives and longing for love in a spiritual, a foundational, a lasting way. Now, one quote that I know is from C.S. Lewis is, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must take care not to despise earthly blessings, but also never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, an echo, or mirage. That's a sermon in itself. But Advent helps us understand that while earthly human love is vital, it is still only a copy, an echo, a mirage of a deeper and more lasting love. One that doesn't come from within the world, but from before its foundations, before the beginning of time itself. And that in his birth, those many centuries ago, Jesus grants us access to this kind of love. The infant in the manger, friends, is a window into the intentions of God in creation. That he breathed life into humanity because of love. And so that we can experience this eternal Trinitarian love that created the universe. Jesus tells us that love is not something that is acquired through a certain practice of spirituality. It's not a possession that is, that is acquired through our acts of devotion. 
We experience it through acts of devotion, but it is not acquired. It is instead a gift that is only to be received. And the gift of the incarnation, the gift of the infant in the manger tells us that you, friend, are loved as intensely and as fully as the eternal love of God between the Father and the Son, the love that they share and have shared for all of eternity. When you're a child at Christmas, your thoughts center upon the presents with your name on them. How many are there? How big are they? What's inside them? What's under the tree for me? But as a parent, we aren't really focused on what we get to open. There's normally not as many gifts for the parents as for the kids. What we're eager for is that moment when our kids, our loved ones, get to open the gifts that we've selected for them. We long to give gifts because the one who made us is the gift-giving God. And he loves when we open up his gift of love. It's what he sent Jesus for. He has made us with the insatiable drive, the desire, the longing for love and to give love. But he also offers us in himself the solution for both. To give and to receive human love is incredible. To give and to receive gifts on Christmas morning is wonderful. But we can have all the human love we can hoard. We can receive every gift that the world has to offer and still be lonely, still be empty, still be searching. At Christmas, the God of love waits like an excited parent, eager for all of us to open ourselves to his everlasting love, the gift of Jesus, Christ our Savior, born on Christmas Day. He is the gift that we're all really looking for. And my hope is that today, this Christmas week, that you will receive this gift over and over and over. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would grant us that which we long for, that you would grant us the love that created the world. What a bold ask. And yet you invite us to ask for that very thing that we can look up to the heavens and call out to God as Father, that we can refer to Jesus as our brother, that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells so near that the Apostle Paul talks about him taking up resonance in our bodies themselves. Father, we pray that we would experience that love today, tomorrow, this week, and as we gather for Christmas and as we appropriately celebrate human gifts and human loves, we pray that we would see through them to your eternal love and to feast eternally upon it. And we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.